Hey everyone, welcome back to the Gary V Audio Experience. Today's episode, Gary goes to No Bullcon and plays a little game called What Would Gary V Do If He Bought Your Business? Enjoy the episode. This is the Gary V Audio Experience. All right, so the unique experience that I was mentioning is a, uh, a, little, uh, a little game show, if you will. We like to call What Would Gary Do If He Bought Your Business? So Gary, yes. welcome to NoBullCon. Thank you for having me. You're a big virtual friend of mine, even though we've, we've never met. So I appreciate all you've done for me and the millions of other people out there. Uh, gratitude is something that I nor all of the rest of the world can give you enough of. Thank you. So I just wanted to make sure we started that with that because you've literally impacted, you know this, you see this all the time, but we can't say it enough. So it's thank you nice. so much. Thank you. It's really nice to be here. So keep doing it, please. Uh, so the, this little game show we have, um, it's, it's a, a, in an effort to help people fix their businesses. We're, we have real life instances, uh, which you are no, in no way obligated to actually buy. But <laughs> we have a variety of different companies that people have submitted. Um, we have some revenue numbers, we have some major problems, we have different industries, and we would love for you to get in the mind space, like you just bought their company, yep. a, po a portion of it. Did I get a good deal? A great deal, okay, dude. Good. Just trying to get the mindset down. You just, you just got the rhino of all rhinos. Cool. Already charging <laughs> hard. Um, okay, so we have a few different scenarios, but before we do that, I wanted to make sure we, we don't miss anybody because of the scenarios that we're gonna, we're gonna announce. So everyone's gonna get value out of there. So I wanted to start with a few things I know you're passionate about. Um, and we can cover a few different things. So the first one is snacks. I know you like snacks. Yep. So um, the snack industry is very competitive. Yep. Um, there's lots of ways to get your product out there. Yes. So if you could start with the snack industry and maybe parlay into products in general, what, what do snack companies, you know, organic, vegan, lots of new opportunities out there to create a unique brand. What do snack companies need to do to make a dent in people's attention in today's world? So, what, it's a really interesting question at a specific time because to go very granular, we have an iOS 14 update that's coming from the Apple phone that is gonna really change Facebook and Instagram retargeting ads that are gonna take away an arbitrage in a lot of ways. And obviously Facebook Inc. and many others will innovate because when you take things away, new things emerge. But the timing of this question is super interesting, right? As a lot of you know, and I, I wanna say what's up to everybody on the virtual screens, I see all your nice faces. Is that some wine in the background or plants? Anyway. Um, Dude, uh, did you see the wine wall? I did, okay. it was epic. And obviously we have a nice group here, like look, I think for a lot of you, and I recognize a lot of the speakers and faces in this room, there was an incredible arbitrage of media and creative on Facebook and Instagram over the last six to seven years. I pretty consistently spoke to it from a branding standpoint. Like, I, I think, you know, what's so amazing about something like COVID is you, you just get to go off the hamster wheel and it allows all sorts of opportunity for thinking. And one of the things, no question, I've realized in the last 15 months is like, wow, no matter how I said it, I don't think I said it well enough because I think the big delta is I understood that brand was being built in these channels and I spoke about 
podcasts and other things, and a lot of people executed, and it's great to see Jim, I saw here, something like, people did things, but there was also sales, and people are very confused what was going on in Facebook, Inc., and YouTube, and all these places, because there wasn't a good enough conversation between the differences between sales and brand. And you almost had these two camps where people really lived their life completely on CAC and LTV, and it was pure math, and then you had a different group that was a smaller group that was playing on brand, and if you're a snack company that's young, you're more doing sales up front to create numbers to give you leverage for another capital raise and things of that nature. And so a lot of those companies, those DTC companies, really rode this wave the last six, seven years, eight years, 10 years on Facebook Inc. ecosystem while the big companies, the ones I work with at VaynerMedia, continue to underestimate how much was going on down there and that's why the arbitrage was so significant. It's just a supply and demand game. This is what I built my dad's liquor store on in Google AdWords in the early 2000s. The difference is that was really just sales. It was intent-based business. Cabernet, I show up, arb, arb, arb. In social, it was really brand and sales. Snack companies are walking into a far more difficult ecosystem today than they did three years ago. So when I think about how to generate sales, there, there's a lot of ways that it can be done and I think Facebook and Instagram, I think TikTok is a, has emerged as an incredibly important platform for sales. If you really understand how to run TikTok ads and if you understand that it's the one place where creative is the algorithm more than other variables so you can literally, your third post can reach enormous amounts of awareness. I think if I'm a snack company, I'm going very hardcore on micro-influencers I'm trying to negotiate deals where I'm only paying if people drove signups, subscriptions, not for just posts and awareness, because there's a huge supply of influencers now, so you don't have to just pay for the post. I think you can get into performance-based marketing in long-tail micro-influencers. But I also think that something that is gonna emerge from this market where you can't you know, run ads, get you to my website, re- Re- see where you are on the funnel of my shopping cart and then retarget you as easily as I could years ago. I think what will emerge from that is people actually caring more about brand. And I like that because I think it's actually gonna help people build better businesses. Because I think f- most people in the last decade have, re- especially because there's so much capital raising going on and there's so much money in the system, we just keep printing it like it's coming out of the sky. People were building companies to raise money, not building companies. And my hope, because I'm always optimistic, is with this moment of a year or two where people are gonna be caught a little bit on the easier math, it's gonna make them innovate around brand. If you're a snack company doing a, if you're doing a vegan or a health play, doing a clubhouse three nights a week around healthy snacks or healthy eating or clean eating, you know, just more micro brand work I think from the sales perspective, I would go long tail influencer and TikTok to kind of close that gap on the rising cost of conversion in a Facebook Inc, aka Facebook and Instagram world. Love it. Thank you so much. All right. You know what time it is, everybody? I think it's time for uh, the official first game show called What Would Gary Do If He Bought Your Business?
How's my game show? It's my I first like time it, doing bro. a game show. Pretty good. <laughs> I like the logo. Uh, okay, so these are real, actual businesses, real, actual people on yep. this planet. Um, these are not startups. These are fully functional working. So <laughs> the first one is uh, Steve. Um, I won't name all of these people, but uh, this company, Integrity Cost Consulting. So what they do is they are a billing, error, and cost optimization opportunity, opportunity company. So basically what they do is they go in to big companies and they help them with their uh, laundry fees, their cable, their utilities, and they find where they're being gouged. Yep. Yep. And so they go in and they find this money and then they take a percentage of that as their fee. I understand the business. Okay. <clears throat> so uh, let's see. Into the. I do. <laughs> I, I like. I think it's a smart business. We we we've used some firms through the years on that front. So uh, I understand. Oh, you it. get it. Okay. Yes. So. Uh, it's just so he's a one-man shop right now. In okay. 2019, he did 77k. By the way, gross and net is the same, right now. Mm -hmm. uh, so 2020, he did 120k. His goal, he wants to increase net income to 300k. Why? It's a good question. I'm Steve right now. I. Oh, you're the, the person's not here. No. Okay. No. Yeah. This. This is. I mean, just because, they're on the internet. Cool. So, I've heard of it. Um, I think I think this is this is a good point for everybody in the room. I think. Right off the bat, the reason I jumped in there is that sentence is the most dangerous part of the question. Mm. Arbitrary numbers of just acceleration, I understand that people are motivated by that and I think we all have different DNA and I, I, I think that you have to respect those context points for individuals but I do believe that arbitrary numbers of growth, people take too literal and start doing all sorts of bananas shit to just hit the number that may hurt them the next year or the year after. And in general, I tend to get a little weird when people just have, you know, it's one thing to say, I want to grow. And I want to grow in a meaningful way, whether it is financially. For me, if we're talking real businesses, which was so much of what excited me to be here, like I love the practicality of an actual business, not a financial arbitrage machine. You're normally playing long. Like it's your family business, it's your business, you're, you're you know, not, most people aren't thinking about when they own a company of like, okay, I'm out in two years and I'm gonna you know, be on a island and get a private plane. So to me, th that's an interesting little variable. Like is it 300K because you wanna put your daughter through college? Is it 300K just because you made up a number? The 300K was easy to understand. The 77 to the one, like it was a logical kind of jump. And there's multiple questions in there. Why not 630? You know, what about more profitable at a buck 95 from 177? What about, what about 210 but no profit made because you hired three more people because you're gonna go to a million the year after? Like, it's fascinating for me about that part, but keep going, I just use that as a proxy to try to bring as much value in this talk. Um, so he, so the biggest challenge continues to be getting prospects to realize that they might be giving away thousands of dollars. Uh, that's number one. The second one, this one's interesting, I feel like I have fun with this, is the egos. Of, of these CFOs and whatnot that I say, that's right. we're already doing it right, thanks. I think that's right. Rick. <laughs> thanks, Rick, I agree. So, a couple things that I think might help some people. This has been a huge factor in my career, I've come to realize. I think it makes no fucking sense to try to convince people that are not convincible. I, I am fascinated by this obsession to like get the deal and just keep, like, like the, the inclining of a no to me, and I'm out. 
the, the like like the sheer like me like literally like the maybe like I'm out. Not worth it. Not worth it. The time isn't worth it in a world of so many. And so for me, this is a game about not convincing, which people fall in love with convincing. This is a game of conviction. He's right, by the way. As somebody who probably has some of that ego when I first heard about it in my 20s, like I'm in my, you know, people are gonna struggle with that. The business model's super interesting, right? They only get paid if they do the work. So it's like, to me, this is about him building awareness. My preference is LinkedIn organic content. It's not quite TikTok, but LinkedIn organic for this room is gold and nobody's posting enough on it. You know, I, I, I'm just telling you, that's just the way it is in there. So he needs to build awareness. So what would you do? You bought his business. I would run, I would probably do 40 to 50 pieces of organic LinkedIn content a week and then another 40 to 50 paid or, uh, LinkedIn ads to the general area where we were, if let's say we were here. I would also stand up a weekly podcast show called You're Wasting Money and so that I could film that so that I could make the ads out of it. So I wouldn't even care if we only had seven people watching at first. I would want the content from the one hour show where I would interview a CFO or somebody from the industry or a legend in procurement or my aunt or whatever the fuck it starts with. And so, and then I would use the content from that to run the ads. So the podcast is almost a proxy to my ad content needs because one of the great misunderstandings of the modern marketing ecosystem is that it's the creative that's the variable of success, not the money you're spending on it. The media plan matters tremendously, but the creative is the variable. And the more at-bats you have, so many people here gave up on Facebook and other things because they said it didn't work. What didn't work was your ad sucked. The platform's working just fine, that's why it's doing trillions. You suck. You know, like that, and that's the part that, pe- that people are like, oh, Facebook sucks. Yes, Facebook sucks. I mean, like, it's a, very, it's a very ego game. You did three ads. You, you tried it for one month. Or you've been running the same video that did work for a while, but eventually it doesn't work, and now you're like, oh, Facebook doesn't work anymore. No, no, you had to refresh the creative. That ad ran its course. So I would run, I would do podcasts weekly. I would, um, in, you know, the best part of having a podcast is you invite people that you want to be customers. It's a lot more fun to email a CFO in your local area through LinkedIn and say, I would love to have you on my podcast to speak about your financial expertise versus emailing her or him and saying, I'd like you to use my company to do business. So now you're doing a a rule that I live by which is called the high school house party rule which is the kid that was lucky enough in high school whose parents constantly went away and he was or she was able to throw a party at their parents' house instantly became dramatically more popular in school. They controlled the party. They hosted the party. By having a podcast and inviting your prospective clients onto it, you're hosting the party and it tends to lead to actual relationship instead of just a sales call. That's what I would do. I love it. Steve, really hope you're watching, brother. Uh, solid advice. All right, good first round. We are on the second round of what would Gary do if he bought your business? I feel like you need the crowd to clap when the thing goes on. All right, all right. Here, yeah, there we go. See, that makes it feel Wait. more, yeah. 
There we go. And by the way, whoever turned on the lights, if you can keep them on, I like the, I need the feedback loop. So if you don't mind that, oh, on huge the for me. Thank you. Yeah, there All right, we go. go ahead. All right, cool. All right, second business. This is Anderson, uh, Hanova Cosmet Cosmetics. Their product or service, cosmetics manufacturers sold 100% through retail distribution and private label, so manufacturer through and through. Yep. Private label relationships. Uh, unique selling position, high quality, low prices. Gross, 2019, five million. Net, 2019, four million. God, cosmetics Jesus. industry. Uh, gross, 2020, 300K. <laughs> Net, 2020, 150K. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, goal, recoup revenue from 2019. No shit. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, direct to consumer. Yeah, this one hurts. And um, this one hurts because I've been, this is something. Oh, I've this been, is interesting. Hold on. This please? might, uh, went, revenue went way down because they were sold in and through salons. So, so maybe not even retail right. as much. So, Whoever's closest to the consumer always wins and is always your vulnerability if you're not that person. So the thought of being reliant on anybody else doing the selling for your product is so scary to me. And a lot of these companies, obviously COVID was such a left field thing for this business. However, those businesses, and I've seen a lot of these businesses, sometimes one salon group is 73% of their business. And then a private equity firm comes along and buys it who also has a cosmetics business and they lose the account and they're out of business. So look, I mean, being in the B2B wholesale business and then deciding you're be, gonna be a consumer-based, direct-to-consumer business is like literally going from being a penguin to a giraffe. They're completely different businesses. However, that is the answer. The answer is, Everybody's about to understand with the advancements of the internet and definitely the emergence of blockchain and NFTs that anything, anything that sits in the middle of somebody buying it and the actual thing is vulnerable and if you're the thing that makes it, you're going to need the person in the middle less and less over time. What technology does is it shrinks the middle. It's doing it everywhere. It did it with bookstores, it did it with Taxi cab service, like it just, that's, this is what's gonna happen. So. But they're probably, I mean, they're the manufacturers, so they are set up to do this well, right? The problem they're is, not just it's, the brand. it's great in theory, but selling to like, doing a B2B business call and selling to like three people is very different than trying to get the whole world to buy your product. Yeah. You know, so cool, but now you're competing with L'Oreal and you know, Elf Cosmetics and you know, Procter & Gamble and Sephora's private label and Ulta's private, like cool, it sounds good, but it, for anybody here who's in manufacturing and the thought of going to direct to consumer, it's just literally a different business. Comma, it is the only way you're protected. There, there should be no businesses today that are producing for a private label or for other third party without standing up their own direct to consumer business. It's just too important. It's like not having life insurance. And so what does that mean? That means investment. That means you have to, have, you have to learn how to do Shopify or Amazon, how to run ads on social networks. Like it's, and, and so what would I do if I was So now that? it's a market, it's a. I it's, mean, first of all, I have no idea how that business is in business. Right, like to, it's either amassing enormous amount of debt, they had tremendous savings, they didn't have a lot of costs and are doing home, like that business, 
is in a really, really tricky spot. A, my hope for them is as we're reopening, that salon business is gonna be there for them, but I think we can all agree, even best case scenario, after hearing those numbers, what, two million next year instead of 5.3, right? But with every one of those dollars, they have to stand up their own Shopify and their own creative ecosystem and have to build a brand. There just is no other option. So building, skip, skip the, the startup stuff. As far as growing that brand in, in all the competition, because shit, cosmetic companies are ev- you know, everywhere now. Uh, what, what is the thing that you do to, to compete with? TikTok. With, yeah. It's just all this, ladies and gentlemen, it's always the same game. What is the underpriced brand building or sales driving ecosystem. Let me give you an example. Do you know why so many people are called ABC Auto? Because the arbitrage in the 70s and 60s was having a name with an A in it for the yellow pages. Right? Like, like I don't think people understand. This has always been the same game. It was just that the yellow pages mattered the most when you bought shit or needed a service. So people literally changed their name from like Tony's Air Conditioning to ABC because you know you show up first. That was the ARP. That's why you see so many of those trucks through the years. So it's, there's direct mail, local television. Procter & Gamble, Coca-Cola became who they became because of television ads. They were better at it and went harder at it. Amazon is the biggest company in the world because they were the number one spender on Google AdWords the first six years of Google AdWords. They, that's how they built their company. They outspent the number two player, eBay, 10 to one. They understood that they had, you know, I'm not a poker player, but you know, you have the hand where you know the math, like you got the hand. That's what they did, and they went all in. And my career has progressed because I have pattern recognition around that, and every time I notice the moment, I go harder and stronger each time. So for cosmetics, 14, 14 to 30 year olds live on TikTok, live. The organic reach is absurd. First video could get two million views, could. Like, so Elf Cosmetics is something that company should Google and understand what they've done for the last year. They've exploded on the back of it. So TikTok would be the answer for me if we're going that granular. And micro-influencers. I still think when your business went from five to 250,000, you were required, if you want to save it, and it's on life support, to lay in bed for six hours and DM 650 people every night and ask them on Instagram, if they're willing to post it, if you send them product, and, and if not, how much does it cost, and literally keep doing micro deals until your eyes bleed. Or go work somewhere, because your business is in trouble. That investment is time at that point. We all have either time or money. So I'm shocked by people's non-interest in allocating time. So much of what's been good for me has been my willingness to allocate time. Time is a true asset. Intent of like that matters. Yes. Great advice. All right. Um, so his name was Anderson. Okay, round three of what would See? Gary do? See? Totally different vibe. If he bought totally your different business. Vibe. Oh, I just got some goosebumps now. That worked. <laughs> All right. Uh, next business, JJ. Um, uh, this is a franchise. I think I can say it. Blank Fitness. It's a franchise. So okay. This will be an interesting one. He's a franchise. E? E, uh, He's not the or. It's not e, his company. E, e, e. got it. Yeah, because he owns yep. a few of them. Understood. Uh, so core fitness memberships, personal training, your standard stuff. But, uh, and this might be biased, but 
cleaner, friendlier than the competition. Okay. He gives examples. So he does say there's always I, somebody I to him. greet. So picture, oh, five-star Google reviews all over the place. So picture this, it, this really is, you know, the place. Uh, goal, increase member volume. Um, biggest challenge is getting new people to walk in the door and join at enough volume at the price point we're offering, so it must be a little higher, to connect our brand with clean and, f the clean and friendly. We're not doing enough volume at the margins we are selling memberships for. This one's tough because I need to ask a follow-up question of like, what are you spending your money on to drive subscriptions? Where, where are people coming in contact with the brand? Yeah, I mean, you know, this gentleman's in a CAC and LTV business, right? He's got math around how much he's spending and how many people's getting and how valuable is that customer. He can look at all his customers and see that people hold on to their membership for 6.3 months and he can run that math and then he needs to run it against a plethora of different media and creative outlets to find the arbitrage that creates scalability. You know what, you'll, you'll, you'll like this. So let's open it up to give more value to businesses like it that are a local-ish business. I think they have three locations, three or four local. So, you know, I'm going, to, I'm going, to, the, service. I'm going to the well, and, I, and a lot of you in here have interacted with me for a long time. I'll have the same answers for two, three, four years, six years, until the next arbitrage comes. Let me give you one local that works tremendously well. I'm gonna go back to micro-influencers because I believe in it so much. You can go, this business should go into Instagram search, search its town that it's in and the five surrounding towns, hit enter. The results will show top posts from people that tagged in the area. You've gotta look at every photo and make sure they're not visiting because you've got some sort of monument or something around. So you're looking for locals and then you DM the local and basically trade free memberships for social media posts at scale. So he ha what he probably has is a gym that's empty which is an expiring asset every single day. Which means in theory he could probably give 30, 50, 100 memberships away to, in return for awareness and cosign from local celebrity. So what I would do in that scenario is look at the six surrounding towns, click every post every day, six times a day, search those six towns, DM those individuals and say, hey, I'm the cleanest fucking gym in the world, you live, you live next door, I would like to give you a free membership for six months, three months, in return I want you to take three posts a month every time you're at the gym, in main feed, six in your stories, one TikTok, and hand-to-hand -hand combat. Do people underestimate the yes. power of social media platforms yes. outside of the traditional yes. marketing that they yes. think they're for? Yep. I think people underestimate dirt work, too. People always look for scale, right? I think people underestimate the dirt. My answers are the dirt. I still do the dirt. From where I'm fucking living, I'm really in the dirt. I believe in the dirt. I believe that if you wanna build your local business, there's no magic bullet. I think three, four, you know what I love? You can train the person at the, you know, you, you know this with restaurants and gyms. They're like these investments they make on employees, they're, they're not good investments, right? Your gym's not getting enough traffic and you've got somebody at the front desk sitting all day. To me, I'm incentivizing that youngster from high school or college or whoever with training them how to do this DM thing I just said and, and giving them comp 
on how many people they convert. That will incentivize them more than them just sitting and doing their own social media work. That's, so, you know, this is how I built my dad's store. You know, what's fun about my career is I've come from a lot of different angles. You know, VaynerMedia was great for me because I have a real mapping now 13 years later of Fortune 500 life because I came from one liquor store. Then I lived in Silicon Valley ecosystem startup culture. Now I'm, now I'm in corporate culture. So, you know, what's fun about what I'm saying right now is it really sucks. I don't know how anybody else feels about this. It sucks when you're pontificating or giving advice and you haven't lived it. I'm telling you shit I did. The difference was in 1997 when I would run up to the little computer right above our registers when nobody was in the store and went into erobertparker.com and posted messages on wine message boards, I wish I had a phone. I wouldn't have had to leave the register and I could have done more. Like, you know, I've lived this hand-to-hand combat world and I know it works and the scale it works at today is remarkable but it just is putting in the reps. Beautiful. All right, get ready for the next round of What Would Gary Do If He Bought Your Business? (laughs) You're you're right, you're right, you're right. Okay, next one. Uh, Osvaldo uh, owns a manufacturer of blankets and bath towels, 100% cotton. Love it. Um, this one is, this one is uh, different. Gross in 2019 was 20 million. Net was 10 million. Uh, gross in 2020 was 40 million. Net was 30 million. So had a good year. Sounds also good. a manufacturer, much like the cosmetics. Private label. Um, they don't have their own brand. So. Their goal is to grow a private label manufacturing business while launching a direct-to-consumer brand and balance yes, the two. Yes. Very similar. Yes. Yeah. Okay, you're doing the same thing, right? Oh, yeah. so their challenge, oh, this is, this is different. Their challenge, unfair competition against China making cheap products. How do, they, how do you combat that? Sounds like they're combating it super well to me. <laughs> they're making $30 million in profit. <laughs> I, I think, I, I, honestly, and it's a good opportunity. I've been fascinated, and maybe this is the case here. My intuition is what he's referring to there is he's probably got two or three or four significant clients, and every day he's feeling the pressure that mm. they may go with a cheaper option because that's what big retailers do. That I love when people cry in baseball. You know, like the thought of like crying that it's cheaper in China without doing something about it, like going to China and producing it there, unless he has some sort of emotional attachment to made in America, and that's his religion and maybe his strategy. But to me, price is always a game. Like, that's like, that's like a funny question to me. That's like, I don't wanna get wet in this swimming competition. <laughs> of course you're gonna have like pricing competition. So I, to me, it's, do not be, it's almost back to the first one. I'd like to, you know, what scares me is I can't double click into this question. That, that business might have been driven all by one Bed Bath & Beyond account. I see this a lot. I see a lot of businesses play ostrich life. They've got one client that's driving their entire business and their strategy is to put their head in the sand and pray to God they never get fired. 
which scares me to no end, especially when you start talking about these kind of numbers. There's a big lifestyle change between 30 million in profit a year and zero. And so for me, I think- And their expenses were and when exactly you, the same. And when you think about the growth there and the speed of growth, that is landing a monster account. So I'm thrilled that they're thinking about private label because that is the way to amortize. China's going nowhere. Let me give you a news alert. China is gonna destroy American business. It's not even gonna be close. You might not like it. I, I surely don't feel like I love it. <laughs> but it's black and white. Too much scale, too much organization, too obvious. So, you know, I would go to China and JV up or, deal. or build a brand or position to, you know, I don't think winning the whole made in America, you know, it's amazing what humans say and then what they do with their buying power. We say things, but we buy differently. You know, we love to tweet made in America, but buy unlimited items that aren't. So I don't trust the consumer on that front. Their dollars speak, not their social media posts. My plan there is to build up the private label, the, per, the brand, and in parallel stand up at, these, at this much profit. I've got my ass in Beijing setting up shop. There you go, Osvaldo. Thank you for the, uh, hopefully, you're, hopefully you're watching. Okay, 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 here we go, here we go. Another round of what would Gary do if he bought your business? Your team just put like that on loop, like. Uh, okay, so we have, uh, this is Owen. Uh, Owen owns a co company named Dixon Site Development. Um, in 2019, you know what? Rather than me saying this, why don't we bring Owen up here? Let's go. Owen, why don't you come up here and everyone give him a round of applause. I like it. Come on up here, Owen. It's good, bro. Owen, why don't you tell Gary a little bit about your company, my friend? All right, so I all, it all started when I just found the passion in running heavy equipment and it all, I've started liking doing it and I worked for a hardscaper for a summer and all the money I made from him, I invested it into a dump truck because my dad, uh, I was 16 at the time. You bought a dump truck. And yeah. We, we heard him. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, I ran it through my dad's company because he owned dump trucks and I couldn't legally own it. Under so I was working and had the dump truck running full time. And eventually I was like, screw this. I hate working for somebody. <laughs> this sucks. So this, with school, was all screwed up this year. I was like, let's just go balls to the walls. And I did. And ever since then, I haven't looked back of working for somebody else or anything like that. I love it. Did they not notice that you weren't on the Zoom or shit? Well, I was, I was actually doing the Zoom on the job and it was, it was kind of... You put of, up like a fake you? Well, I didn't even turn my camera on. <laughs> but yeah, it worked out Good for you. the school. So what's the question? Um, what would you do to like improve on or be ready for turning 18? If you were me. Well, what do you want to happen? 
Oh, we do like site work and land clearing and blacktop work. What's the average ticket price of like a job? Uh, it really all depends on the size. Like if we were going to clear a piece of land, it could be like anywhere from seven to 20,000. And when you say, you know, improving at 18, meaning are you gonna go to college or are you just no, gonna go? I, yeah. Well, school's always been hard for me, so that's why I was like, was thinking about a trade and I found a passion in it and I was gonna good. pursue it. Good for you. So you're, are you just trying to drive more customers? So you, your business has jobs and then you have to fulfill those jobs. Are you struggling more to get jobs or are you struggling more to service those jobs well? Well, it was, at first it was hard to get jobs because my age and people weren't taking me serious, which I knew that going in and I've been around it my whole life. So I'd go to these jobs at first and I'd, they want to take me serious. And at some point they just all started coming towards me and they started working out. And I just want to pursue and have, make jobs for people and Make it so at some point I don't need to go out and work. I can just have somebody else do it, and I'll just scale it even more. You meaning the execution of it? Yeah. So how close are you to having, do you have any full-time employees? Uh, during the summer, I do. So is the question about that moment where you start scaling, where you're not doing the job itself, is it about because it's a very simple business, which is awesome. You have a passion for it. You clearly grew up around it, so you have expertise. Very similar to me, yes. by the way. Um, you know, I think the quite, let me give you a couple th things that run to mind. One, I think people in your situation often don't hire or make the financial commitment to the infrastructure around them early enough. They want to do one more year where they can take the money out yeah. instead of pay somebody 50K a year so that they can do something with that money. So for me, any ability to like stay disciplined, to be more patient, to build infrastructure so you can scale more instead of taking money off the table is normally the cliche thing that I see that's made a mistake of in this scenario. Yeah. Which is like hire and build around you more. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the great things, like the reason my dad's liquor store went from three to 65 million so quickly was I kept paying myself 45, 50,000 a year. And so like, instead of doing the cliche thing that I think a lot of people do, which is make, get paid 250,000 a year so I can buy a BMW when I'm 27, I hired more managers, I bought more inventory, I ran more ads, and it compounded it. Too many people want to take it off the table, especially at this age. Yeah. So I think when I hear that last sentence from you, I think hiring that right hand or right hand man or woman is a huge factor. Doing it earlier than you think will play out. Alrighty. And, and because that, it doesn't sound like you, it seems like word of mouth is driving your new business, yeah, right? Yeah, word of mouth and Facebook really work too. Worked really good. I've heard. <laughs> cool, yeah. hire, hire, hire. And yeah. I'll give you another piece of advice. I think people talk about not hiring your friends and family. I'm actually a very big disagreeer of that. I think hiring friends and family is incredible. I think it's up to the boss to be candorous. Right, you know, like, and I, by the way, on the record, I struggled with candor most of my career because I liked too much positivity. I was too capable of generating dollars. I hated the idea of like, the, I, I believe it or not, on stage, I'm quite, and on video, I'm very comfortable with confrontation, shooting it straight. But in real life, it was a little harder for me. But if you're upfront with your buddies and your friends, like, there's a lot of great stuff that comes along with building with your crew. Yeah. And so, I would consider that too. Yeah, definitely. Uh,
Cool. Yeah. Congrats. Thank you. Congrats, Ben. Another round of applause for Owen. Young, 17-year-old so cool. entrepreneur. Young Gary right there. I see it. Do I you? See it. Yeah, because, you know, him and I both had the great fortune of, and it's great fortune of being around a business. You get to see it, you get expertise. I mean, you'd be stunned what I knew about wine at 16. I mean everything. Because I also struggled with school and I'd go to school and not think about, I knew I, you know, I didn't think I was gonna go to college. My mom forced me in the end, but I just sat and read the Wine Spectator in class. Somewhere around fifth grade I realized they just pass you, they don't give a shit. So I was like, all right. Well, I'm, as I just like sit in the middle of science class and read the Wine Spectator and was like a nice enough boy that my teachers like didn't, they hated it, but it was kind of this funny relationship and I would be me and make jokes about Pinot Noir during Saturn talk and it all worked out in the end. All right, well listen, that concludes the uh, uh, body portion, I don't know, it's not the right word, but core portion of what would Gary do if he bought your business? Everyone give Gary a round of applause, Owen. All right, Gary, here we go. Turn your chair a little bit. Okay, these are rapid fire questions. These are real people watching right now, yep. virtually. Um, you can bear down, we're gonna hammer through these. These are tactical questions. Everybody out there live or, well, you're all live, but in person or virtual, uh, get your notepad out. These are really good questions. Okay, first one, I've been in Clubhouse for a couple months, appears to be a great space for uh, entrepreneurs, coaches, consultants, trainers. How do you see the app uh, working for, for and bringing value to consumer products, consumers, and companies? You know, I think, I think there's, it all comes down to storytelling. Like, if you're a beer consumer package product company, get your brewmaster on there to talk about the process. People don't want commercials, people want information. And it may be as mundane as how, you know, I, I'm a big fan of how to avoid, how to avoid our services. So I think Owen could go on Clubhouse and talk about like 12 things you should ask yourself before you call us to clean your spot. That you could, you know, once you start giving that kind of value, it's what I did with Wine Library TV. I reviewed wines we sold and told you not to buy them. That just is a brain fuck from a business standpoint, but it, it really changed my career. Same with consumer goods. Like, talk about the macro, not your product. If you're selling peanuts or beef jerky or sneakers, go higher about It's like a life. halo effect. It's a, it's a halo effect on brand, but you have to elevate what you talk about because nobody's gonna wanna talk about the peanut. They may wanna talk about healthy lifestyle, alternative protein, you know, weight lift. Like, there's things like that, and you yeah. have to go higher. Michelle asks, how would you leverage social media to grow your financial firm, knowing FINRA, SEC, all that FINRA, kind of stuff? You know, we work with Chase, I work with tons of financial advisors. L law is an excuse. Don't break the law. Don't go on your LinkedIn and say, buy this stock now. <laughs> like, follow the rules, but th it's very easy to navigate those rules. Talk about tried and true, do Q&A, go on LinkedIn Live and answer people's financial questions. People think in selling, they don't think in service. And the second you make that shift, social will reward you dramatically, because the word of mouth compounds better than it did in the real world three decades ago. Beautiful. Megan asks, how do we find great talent and develop them to lead the organization day to day so the founders can fo focus on growth and strategy, not the daily stuff? There's a lot there. One, most 
leaders, when they ask this question, are micromanaging their people because they don't trust because they're insecure. So people are in their wrong own- Wrong people or wrong mindset, usually. What's that, brother? Wrong people or wrong mindset, usually, the if they're owners, The owners are coming from an insecure place of losing money in the micro, so they don't let go. So there's a lack of fear at the owner level of letting go because if Johnny fucks up, we're gonna lose that money, so they never let go, which never allows for leadership. You're gonna have to jump in the pool and swim. You're gonna have to take the training wheels off. You're gonna have to go in for the kiss. And all those things that we did in adolescence, in business, it's actually empowering somebody and letting them go, right? The other huge variable in this is firing fast. Hiring fast, firing faster, and promoting fastest. This is something that I see a lot of people don't do. I think people overthink hiring, like they're gonna be the perfect hire. It, people lie in interviews. It's hard, it's hard. References are bullshit. I've never called a reference in my entire career. You want me to waste my time to call the three people you picked to tell me bullshit? <laughs> what are we doing? I've never called a reference in my career. Um, I have incredible emotional intelligence, have had this incredible intuitive career of predicting trends, and yet have hired an enormous amount of wrong people. You don't know until you know. So you, you hire fast, because that takes up time. You fire faster. When you know somebody's not right, you fire. Nicely, gracefully, you know, give them some candor up front, try to make it work, but you promote fastest. So many people know after three months they have something, but they wanna wait a year before they give a promotion. It's a huge mistake. So there's, very, there's a lot there that's very different than the way most things do it. That's a huge answer to the scale issue of that question. Thank you. Um, well, I don't thank you. Uh, Megan does. Uh, Rick says, uh, what, is your, your best what is your best advice on business development and networking for people not good at it? To hire somebody to do it. The idea of trying to make yourself slightly better and all the energy that goes into that versus hiring around your shortcomings will forever blow my mind. What if you can't? What if Rick can't? Then he's can't gonna afford it. Then he's gonna lose. That's like me saying to you, I need to fight that UFC fighter. And you're like, well, you shouldn't. You should get that UFC fighter to do it. And I'd be like, you're right. <laughs> but then I said to you, but I can't. Now I have to go. Well, then I'm gonna get my face beat in. Like, like you know, there's some funny questions in business. Like, if you can't business develop and you can't hire someone to do it, you're out of business. And that's okay. Not everybody should own a business. Uh, Beth asks, how do you create an entrepreneurial atmosphere at a very large bank? You don't. <laughs> this ideology of like entrepreneurship is fucking insanity. It's like being an entrepreneur in a communist country. It's not gonna happen. You know, it's, it's, you could create some nice relationships inside, you could have a nice work environment-ish, but an entrepreneurial environment means high risk, speed, lack of process, forward thinking, not overvaluing the numbers. There's no fucking bank that Always gives a shit. for like ridiculous. six weeks. That is a ludicrous, impossible mission. Uh, I like this next one for multiple reasons. Number one, his or her name is Mace. I used Mace. to love Mace. Uh, Diddy and Mace did it. Yeah. Uh, can Gary riff on urgency tactics? I mean, you run a 
hundreds of millions of dollars ad company, also other things. Everything's urgent, especially in the marketing world, right? Advertising world. How, what, are the what are your tactics, yours or your teams? Or For, I want to make sure I understand the question. When, how do we prioritize urgent matters? Yeah, how, I'll elaborate on the question, Please. I guess. How do you uh, balance other people's urgency, a.k.a. your clients, ah. with, think, with, your, with your actual urgencies? How do you negotiate that? How do you navigate that, better word? The people that are in, when you're in a client service business, the account person or the partner has to over-communicate truth because every time you don't, you're just creating a ticking time bomb. And when something goes wrong, like someone on your team gets sick and it, or somebody quit or you fired, like when something goes wrong, you have to constantly update that person. You know, I think that the biggest reason most, I think one of the reasons we built a large client service business in a short period of time is because I am not interested in pandering to what I think the client wants. I want to tell them the truth of our capability and the truth of its timing and cost, and it's okay if they're not interested. Which they actually probably love. You so, know, well, some do, maybe. yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of people do love it because people like knowing what they get in for, they probably like the conviction and the confidence. Other people hate it. They like being pandered to and things like that. And that's, it's all fine. It's a hell of a lot better for us though. There's nothing more anxious than knowing it's gonna be challenging before it even started, right? And so, and by the way, this does not come from a place of privilege because we built a big company and can say no. We did it from the beginning because we just knew it would be a losing game. And I, this goes back to something I said earlier. It's a big deal. Don't convince, have conviction. When you're not convincing, you're just moving on. Too many people are trying to make it work when it's clearly not working. And when you're on the servicing the client side of that scenario, you're in for deep shit. All right, one more question. Jackie asks, how do you see cancel culture impacting social media platforms? Do you think new platforms will evolve because of it? And will we end up a divided economy? Um, or culture, I guess, maybe. Either, yeah, I think that's either. what that probably meant. So yeah. we, we are a divided culture because we've always been a divided culture. The only thing that social media is doing is exposing us. Nobody's been changed, my friends. This is mirror life. You know, so of course new platforms will emerge, but not because of the way we treat each other. We're doing that on TikTok and Clubhouse right now. They just emerged. This isn't a Facebook and Twitter problem. This is a lack of cordialness problem, which has always existed. We just feel, this is always what people thought and said to the TV. You just didn't see it. We're just seeing things now. I think it's brilliant. I'm actually loving what's going on. I always believe that one step backwards, two steps forward. I mean it. It's tough. I'm not enjoying it from the kind of day-to-day -day anxiety, but I'm very aware that in the macro, people look back at this era as a starting point to betterness because there's an expo you gotta expose shadows. And we've got a lot of shadows, and every society does, and every person does, and it's all fine and dandy, but, but new platforms won't emerge because we're not getting along, um, it's because innovation comes along. Things get stale, right? I mean, look, do you remember four minutes ago when Facebook was just for college kids? Now it's for grandparents, right? Like, you can even feel Instagram starting to lose its kind of, right? You can feel it, you can feel it. And so, it will always evolve, because social networks are really more like cable platforms 
than they are like anything else. They have their runs. Facebook Inc. might have a Saturday Night Live run. Vine had like an empire run. Like they have different lengths. And so, you know, but, but a divided culture doesn't mean a divided people. You know, just because people see things differently doesn't mean it can't coexist. We need to, get, we need to, we are in this deep need to convince the other person to see the world our way. Uh, I'm looking forward to when we're exhausted of that ridiculousness and find ways to have some cordial conversation, which I really actually believe in, but it might just take a decade. All right, so one last little piece before we wrap up here. Um, this is No Bull Con, uh, the No Bullshit Business Conference, as you can see, unfiltered, all yeah. that kind of stuff. We're all here to... There's a lot of No Bullshit people up there. Get... It's, <laughs> uh, what is one thing you think a lot of entrepreneurs or leaders need to hear, you know, gut checks that they need to hear in order to be successful over the next decade? That if you're looking for outside validation based on your net worth, your blue check mark, or how many followers you have, you're ultimately vulnerable for the game that we're actually playing, which is do you enjoy your life? And you need to really look at that because it really plays out. It is only sustainable for so long to play an optics game for other people to think you're successful. It is the number one thing entrepreneurs need to hear. Like, who, you know, I reference this a lot, and I know a lot of people here, because I see some faces are close to my content. I reference a very obscure part of the cinematic classic, Rocky IV. And in Rocky IV, which is the one where he fights Drago, the Russian, the Russian, at the end, talks about this thing. They fight, Rocky wins, the crowd, you know, and Drago grabs the mic and he goes, look, all of you in this Russian crowd, you thought it was Russia versus America in this ring? I was fighting for myself in here, fuck you. And that's how I think about my business. I'm so appreciative of the love, the admiration, but my inability to hear that is why I'm able to deal with the negative pushback that I'm a this, that I'm a that, and it makes it very quiet for me and then I get to play my game. I think the biggest thing that people need to hear is you will always lose if you're doing it for them. Always. It's just not sustainable in the end. And I want people to be happier. Like, it matters. <laughs> like, your quality of like mental happiness matters. And I think people think money closes the gap on it. And I actually think much like social media, it exposes it. I think if you're unhappy, money will expose it, make it more unhappy. It will not close the gap. And so doing it for yourself, which is so awesome. I, I assume a lot of you in this room and on video probably know the thing I know, which is, holy crap, business is my favorite hobby. Like, I would much rather do a business meeting than golf. It's not even close. I would much rather have a business problem that I have to solve than go skiing or take a trip to a vineyard. I just enjoy it. Literally the only thing in my life that gives me the same kind of like feeling is not even going to a Jets game because that is actually escapism. That is like my church. That like caring so much about something that in theory you shouldn't care about actually helps everything work for me. It's actually garage sailing. <laughs> this is real. This is how I know I'm in a very sick place of like loving my thing. The only thing in the world that gets my chemicals going the same way every day does running businesses 
is waking up at six o'clock on a Saturday with like a 33 you know, garage sale, town-wide garage sale, and it's still just business. It's finding something for 40 cents that I know is eight bucks, or eight, something that's eight bucks. That, and, and so that's when I knew, that's when I knew um, that, that's when I knew that, um, that business, right, I found my true love. And honestly, I think for a lot of you in this room and on video, debating how much you, you may love business and you like may love being an entrepreneur, but do you love the thing you're doing? Because if you don't, Having the humility to take a step backwards financially to reset and do something you like more is something that I'm trying to talk a lot about more because I've seen it. I've seen it ironically, not because the person usually had enough humility to pull it off, it's because they were forced to because shit went bad and they're like, oh my God, I wish this did this 12 years ago. This is so much more fun. I like this thing. Trying to find something you love, it really works and so I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm really hopeful that people, I mean, I'm blown away by how status, money, follow count, blue check marks, Mercedes-Benz's, Rolexes, like private plane. I, I, I don't think I, because I was in my own cocoon for so long, I don't think I understood how much people needed outside affirmation to be a band-aid for their emotional instabilities or insecurities that they were parented with or things of that nature. And, and I come with such gratitude that I didn't stumble into that, but then almost a level, to be very frank, almost a level of guilt that I didn't stumble into that. And so grateful, it's like this very weird kissing cousin of like guilt and gratitude that makes me desperately want to communicate it on the platform that I have of like, like I don't know how many very, 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 very wealthy people you know, but a shocking amount of them are not super pumped, not super happy, not living the dream, you know, and so it's not gonna be money, so fig, you know, figure it out. And by the way, we made a subtle point earlier and I saw some people react. I'm gonna throw a weird one, which is also not fun to say but could lead to so much more happiness. I believe there's a lot of people watching or in this room right now that shouldn't be number ones that are like in between a one and a two and like don't have the stomach or like the leadership to really be a true number one entrepreneur. I know that's a weird thing to say and I, I don't say it as a negative. I just see so many people that are playing a number two role, making way more money and loving life so much more after they stop trying to be a number one for the optics of it or the ideology of it. So that's very much on my mind as well. Ladies and gentlemen, Gary Vaynerchuk is no bullshit. As we end today's podcast, I want to give a huge shout out to the people, you know, it's so funny, people that leave reviews and written reviews of this podcast on Apple, Spotify, and all the other platforms just mean the world to me. You've taken an extra 13 to 95 seconds to show love and also give context to people of why this is a worthwhile podcast. So I appreciate that so much and even more fun, because uh, I think we all love a little cosign or a shout out or a little awareness. Uh, I'm gonna have the team give a couple of shout outs uh, daily on uh, our favorite reviews. So take it away, which were our favorites this week. Thanks Gary. Today's amazing five star review comes from Troy and it reads, 
I've learned so much since being introduced to Gary a few months ago. He's got that Obama quality. When he speaks, you listen. I've had so much fun learning about the crypto space from this podcast and Gary's social channel. As a newbie content creator myself, I'm learning about some of the mistakes I've made early on and how I can right the ship following Gary's guidance. Thank you again, Troy, for that amazing review. And to anybody listening out there, if you leave us a review, you might just get shouted out in the next episode.